0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys, as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. So, first of all, our guest this week is Kastori Torsha. You may not have heard her name before, but I think her work is incredibly powerful and very much something that we wanted to showcase here on this podcast. Kastori is a PhD candidate in counseling, psychotherapy, and she is a, um, the founder of Esprit Concrete, which is a method that is combining um, parkour and auto-deplacement with therapeutic modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy. So uh, she has defended her thesis but has not published it yet. Um, We'll get into that and get into the details of how these two things come together. Um, I was recently introduced to her by a good friend of mine and I was very interested because obviously this is very aligned with our ideas around parkour as a form of self-cultivation or movement practice as a form of self-cultivation. So really excited to share that with you guys. Before we get to the podcast, just a little bit of housekeeping. So many of you know that we released our retreats for 2020 recently. Return of the Source is already sold out. Really excited about that. We have an amazing crew coming back, uh, are coming and we have a lot of of folks coming back. It's almost half people who are coming back for a seminar uh, for the second time. So very excited about that. Um, We do have also our seasonal seminars, May 14th through the 17th and October 1st through the 4th, which are on sale, if you'd like to get involved with one of our retreats this year, which is really the best way to experience the Evolve Move Play method. So um, our spring retreat, Awaken Your Movement, is going to be focused on really preparing the body and coming into the high energy season of summer. Um, We're going to be seeing the beauty of the spring in Washington, the blossoms. Um, You're going to get to do four days of training. Uh, You'll have three nights on our family property. We'll be going to Volunteer Park and Whatcom Falls and climbing the creek. And the creek run is especially cool, actually, um, in those uh, spring and fall seasons because we have higher water flow. So it's quite intense and really fun. So if you're interested in that, you know, make sure to reach out to us ASAP, get on a call because uh, those spots will likely move very, very fast. Um, That's pretty much the details. Uh, we, you know, if you want to uh, check out more, we'll be a link in the description. Um Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Castori Torcia.
1: Um, and I'd never, um, I, I'd never heard about it. I'd never seen anything. Um, unlike a lot of people, I, I didn't know any of the social media stuff about it. Not even the films. Or I just thought stunts are stunts. And so, yeah, I had no idea um, what I was getting into. And so I just really, really tried it not knowing anything, which um, now that I think about it, I'm, I feel like I'm quite lucky actually, cause I didn't really have any expectations at all. And it was all really quite new and novel. Um, so yeah, about five and a half years ago.
0: Cool, you didn't have to worry about having to jump off buildings right away.
1: No, um, actually Yao was my uh, first teacher and I uh, was at that, um, I went to that class because he was teaching at my university where I was studying. And, um, as part of the university, uh, it was free. So I dropped in because somebody else re- recommended it, um, for me, but more in terms of just, there's this class you may like. Um, they didn't actually train themselves. So they just knew me and thought they know what that is. One plus one equals two. So I turned up and he asked me, you know, have you ever tried at parkour? He was teaching with PKG at the time. Um, Have you ever tried parkour before? And I said, what's that? So it was quite hilarious. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so turned up really thoroughly enjoyed it. But now in hindsight, when I think about it, I think I thoroughly enjoyed what he also brought to the session
2: um,
1: and his take on it. Uh, And for me, as soon as I did it, my mind was just blown. I was just like, I see therapy here. Like it was, it was pretty, a very visceral um, change, I think. And then I just thought, okay, I, I feel like I, I think I said to him after the class, I feel like I want to do this forever now. Um, but I didn't even know what this was. So yeah.
0: Excellent. Um, so uh, you said you were in a university at the time, you were in a university for clinical psychology?
1: Counseling psychology. Counseling psychology. Um, so Yeah, I was on my uh, doctorate and I was looking... I was, at the time, on my doctorate. People were starting to think about what their thesis was about. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have a topic yet. Um, I was quite behind on choosing a topic. Um, And I didn't really have anything that kind of... I felt like I could immerse myself in. So I've never really... I never really used to associate myself with academia too much. I kind of found it a way to do the thing that I loved, which was working with people, um, in a capacity that made sense to me and that I was kind of, I felt aligned with. Um, Therapy made sense to me because I wanted to know about me and my history and all the whys about my family and stuff like that. So I think I got into it that way. Uh, So whenever I heard research, I used to kind of panic because I didn't know what I wanted to research or what research really was about. and then once I started getting to training a little bit more and I had ups and downs with my training, the fact that I just innately saw process, processes that parallel training with what they were teaching me, it, it is to practice therapy. I kind of thought, you know, can I do something with this? And Yao and I spoke for hundreds of hours before we even came up with what I wanted to uh, study. And then we honed it even more with my supervisor because it was too broad. And, Um, I ended up doing um, a grounded theory study on lack of progression in parkour. Um, And and it resulted in a model um, that's kind of psychodynamically informed, but it's a multimodal model that allows us to create a kind of longitudinal understanding of an individual and how they process hurdles in general. And how that can be applied to their movement hurdles in order to kind of simultaneously unblock struggles that they go through.
2: Um,
1: So it's a very process driven thing. Um, I did pass my Viva not too long ago um, but I've got quite a lot of amendments because I have to just grow everything. So although I don't have too many core changes I need to flesh it out a bit more. Um, But I'm currently five months pregnant so (laughs) Now, we have, thank you. <laughs> no, most people don't know yet. Um, but yeah, so we're juggling a few things, but uh, at some point this year that will get finished and then people will have access to it. But that's what we use at Esprit Concrete to inform our work.
0: Yeah, is your partner?
1: Yao yeah, is, yes. Yeah. And he's also the co-owner of Esprit Concrete.
0: So he's your partner and your partner. <laughs> he's all the things.
1: He's my partner in a lot of different ways. Um, and just because of different skills that we have it's also taken a while for us to learn how to work together um so it's been interesting uh to to also you know to know that you've got somebody who completely gets what you're doing but at the same time maybe does it in such a different way that you need to work through the clashes so it's quite nice because our our process mirrors our work so it's quite fun Um, but also very challenging sometimes
0: yeah. You said you passed something, but I didn't catch it. Or maybe it was some... British... Oh, uh,
1: just when you finish your doctorate or your um, PhD, you have to defend your research. Mm-hmm. So you can pass it with no amendments um, oh. or minor changes, or you can pass, or you can not pass it, or you can pass it with some like, time-consuming changes. So given that I'm pregnant and also there's a lot that I can now elaborate on, not having any kind of word limit or anything, um, I've got quite a bit that I want to do to it. Okay. Um, before I submit the final thing, which is available to everyone. So yeah, yeah. but it's just a nice marker for me because I've your
0: thesis, but it hasn't been published.
1: Exactly, exactly. yeah.
0: And your yeah, so your thesis is basically on uh, just a what I heard was your, your thesis is essentially the mental thing that happens when you're plateauing or not able to progress in parkour, and then how you deal with that process.
1: So um, this is where I feel like I get really boring, but if I don't explain it fully, then I also get lost. So um, the, the model is like a picture. So it's on one page um, and it goes through uh, getting people to think about what they came into parkour looking for,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what they eventually maybe gained, but also maybe lost Paradoxically lost from their training experience or their training style, Uh, how that resulted in some kind of uh, coping mechanism kicking in that either kept them in the discipline or moved them out in different ways. So, whether that's from something small like repetitive injury or if that's actual quitting, Mm -hmm. there are different styles that develop. And the model kind of shows how the start to the end links in and maintains itself and how that mirrors somebody's natural style of coping with issues Challenge. that they face challenges yeah um, so we call it in psychological speak a kind of longitudinal model that we can use to formulate clients um so if a psychologist was to start working specifically with add parkour free running they would be able to use this conceptualization with the client to better understand the processes but without isolating it as being only sports focused because the parallel with how they cope in relationships how they cope with work how they cope with other things mm-hmm. um mirrors it directly
0: yeah that's it it's interesting so i'm you know i'm not a therapist or a, or or deeply educated in psychology but i have come across different psychological schools of thought through through different years, and one of them that I'm familiar with, or somewhat familiar with, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And you know, essentially, that's uh, you know what I understand about it is a lot of it has to do with um, with exposure therapy, and then changing your mental processes so that you learn how to um, manage anxiety and become more courageous to overcome the things that are, are limiting you. And as I started reading a little bit about it, it struck me that it, that, as in a lot of ways like a kind of a mental parallel to what we saw with parkour, right? So I started jokingly calling parkour uh, motor behavioral therapy, right? Okay. Physically acting out the process of exposing yourself to something that is challenging, um, potentially fear or anxiety inducing, frustration inducing, and then creating a process that allows you to overcome that. So that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to, to having a conversation with you is because I thought this was really interesting. And, um, you know, our, our orientation with Evolve Move Play is really about the idea that fundamentally movement practices exist. The thing that keeps people coming back to movement practices, what, whatever movement practice it is, is that somehow allows a transformation in their self that's meaningful to them and that is transferable to life. Um, but often we don't actually focus on that right mm-hmm. think a lot about how to get better at the kong vault but we don't think about how we make the kong vault work better to help us be better at everything else
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and it seems like that's very aligned with what you uh the work that you're doing with this spirit concrete so i'm curious whether um uh kind of uh do you see the same parallel uh, you know is you, do you uh are you using cognitive behavioral therapy like you mentioned psychodynamic therapy um i'm just if you could give me a little bit more uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so, um, so by trade, uh, I can't. I don't like officially calling myself counselling psychologist without saying pending sure. uh, post fiver because uh, that's just more accurate. Um, but even as a therapist, because I'm already a qualified therapist, so if we just go with that, the idea is um, that as a counselling psychologist trainee, you work uh, multimodally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we work with whichever model, I guess, not only are you competent in, but your client needs. So the parallels that you're making with the CBT, um, the cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, I think I would call it the easiest um, way for us to uh, draw a parallel between um, a problem-solving scenario Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in parkour uh, with a very uh, visual aspect to it where you can see all those steps and you can follow them through Uh, and in that way that situation mirrors it really really well so I can totally relate to what you're saying. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, What I think is a little bit different with Esprit Concrete is that uh, the Esprit Concrete method is an approach that is more linked to a mindset for conceptualizing the person's um, processes Mm-hmm. Rather than a methodology you sign up to, so it's it's not paralleled in the sense that c b t has its strengths and vulnerabilities psychodynamic has its strengths and vulnerabilities. Esprit concrete uses whichever therapeutic model best suits the client
2: sure.
1: and that is kind of dependent on what the client feels but also what professional judgment I put in um or whoever the therapist would be yes yeah, so um in that sense, uh, how I make sense of the people who work with me
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and how I try to he- help them make sense of the people who work with us um, is really fundamentally dependent on who is in front of me.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: some people kind of want to, uh, want to or need to look way past the present and be a lot less uh, solution focused or problem focused solving focused and think more about the relational um dynamics that they need to work on in order to best um to best live comfortably um within their own relationships, within work relationships, within their systems. Um, So if it's very systemic, there are systemic approaches that will, for me, tap in a lot more to psychodynamic theory that we will bring to the front. And as a result, the esprit concrete method that we deliver to that person will Uh, mirror the needs that they have. So we would use a lot more uh, object-related analogies. We would use a lot more in-depth questioning of the hows. We would use the uh, guided discovery a lot further to go back to the root sort of triggers of our defenses than we would with somebody, for example, who comes in and says, I can't physically get to work because I'm that anxious. Yeah, yeah. I want to be able to go back to work by this date. In which case, that's very classically um, useful for us to use a CBT sort sure. of methodology. But the Esprit Concrete um, model will base its work around my grounded theory um, model, longitudinal model, which would have space for uh, not the modality we work, but just a more comprehensive understanding of a sport and psychological longitudinal formulation for that individual yeah Um, so it's a little bit different because although the esprit concrete method um, is an intervention Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, it's an intervention that uh, changes the look of it uh, depending on who we're working with Uh, and therefore it doesn't refute or suggest that it's better or completely different to any other therapeutic model it's just bringing them together in a different way, using a very different medium because the medium is objects yeah. and how we overcome them. Um, and the model in itself doesn't exist yet. So the only, the, as far as I know, I'm not sure, but I think that it's the first grounded theory study, um, of,
0: so you, uh, can you clarify the term grounded theory?
1: So it's a theory generation, which means I did a set of interviews that then, uh, extrapolated, um, Core processes from that people were undergoing, who experienced the process of either quitting or lack of progression,
2: okay. and
1: using those processes and a detailed um, analysis of that qualitative analysis of it, um, we I created a conceptualization and a model mm-hmm. that I then tested with the following interviews that I did to create a theory, okay. and I and the theory uh, will develop hopefully over the years that I do it. Um, if I continue. Um, But the initial theory is what my doctorate is on. The model is just the visual representation of what the theory I'm suggesting is. Mm -hmm. Um, And there definitely wasn't a theory like that in counseling psychology, but there also wasn't necessarily too many theories that uh, took a really longitudinal approach. uh, So from lifespan approach in sport. um, Because sport... Has always been quite outcome driven. So even though it recognizes the value of the psychologist's perspective, it kind of uh, still was very heavily driven by the fact that we need you to attain this, that, and the other. Mm. And you need to attain this, that, and the other. So it starts, um, at least from what I have seen and what I've come to know, it doesn't start as far back as childhood, for example. It's not very preventative in the way that it's been modelled.
0: So... Sports psychology in general?
1: Sports psychology. Yeah, okay. Um, and now the movement is a lot more holistic. It's moving a lot more towards integrating sports psychology with other disciplines. Um, so for me, it made total sense to use the efficiency of sports psychology with mm. the, um, the depth that you can get from counseling psychology that really looks at the person in all its environments. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and combining the two, through this, as you said, really powerful, visceral experience of art du déplacement, parkour or free running.
0: Yeah. So um, so just to kind of replay back to you what I heard uh, and hopefully you know, make it clear for everybody, uh, sports psychology um, tends to be focused basically on, like if I'm, a, if I'm an athlete, uh, you know, say a soccer player or football player, as you guys would say over there, um, and I am struggling maybe with my corner kicks. I have a lot of anxiety with my corner kicks. So I'll come to you as a sports psychologist and your goal will be to change that acute symptom now. And the, the depth of that analysis won't necessarily be looking at the full lifespan. And, um, and then we're not gonna be necessarily looking at how the practice of soccer impacts the rest of my life is that sort of what you're saying in in sports psychology has tended to focus on
1: yes and I think also the athlete has tended to focus on because of the system they're in so when they go to a sports psychologist they want that sports psychologist to help them alleviate that anxiety because with that anxiety they can't be proficient for their team yeah um but if there's a normalization of the fact that Okay, are you perhaps anxious with other things in the same way, or what is it specifically about this that's generating this anxiety? Sometimes you can extrapolate something fundamental that that person has now sort of created a habit with or formed a defense for that if that's worked on, the likelihood that he may then get anxious with goal kicks yeah and tra- just transferring one anxiety to another sort of reduces, um, but it's really about then just changing pattern of thinking both for the professional and for the club, but also for the individual. Um, and just allowing that maybe things take a little bit more time. Maybe they're not as instantaneous, but over time we save money, we save energy, we save um, things that are just because we're being more preventative rather than just curative of a problem.
0: Yeah. So this is something that, that kind of hits on my my personal little passion i guess right now and and also what what really attracted me to have this conversation with you because i think it's interesting that you know you're you're marrying basically psychology that is very performance oriented with psychology that is sort of um person oriented right like life oriented and it seems like in a lot of ways uh and then you're marrying that with parkour add right which uh is this very in some ways it's a very strange phenomenon in the kind of sport world, that I think actually parallels a lot of this distinction. Um, The way that I've been thinking about this in my own head is a distinction that's used in Japanese martial arts between Do and Jitsu. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with this?
1: No, but I think I remember listening to, um, I remember listening to uh, a podcast that you did maybe with Tomas where you mentioned it yeah, for the, yeah. and then you were also talking about gi, I think. Um, I'm not a martial arts <laughs> sort of connoisseur, but um, I then Googled it. So I have the sort of some idea of it, um, right. but yeah, thanks to your
2: podcast.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I will uh, just lay it out real quickly, but do basically is the is the Japanese version of the word Dao, which is in Tao mm-hmm. and Ching, it means way, right? And wow. jitsu basically just means technique, right? So you can have a jitsu of carpentry or a jitsu of, you know, computer programming. Um, traditionally, a lot of the martial arts started as jitsu in Japan. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they were oriented primarily towards uh, essentially being professional skills of the warrior class.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When those professional skills were no longer really necessary in the world, right? When you know, swordsmanship didn't matter that much because you had guns. Um, People wanted to continue practicing it, and then many of these arts started to change their name from um, jujitsu to judo, from kenjutsu to kendo, etc. And some of them became very sport oriented, which is a little bit different. But the general idea of the do was that it was about how um, how it impacted you as a person. So even though practicing swordsmanship may no longer be re- highly relevant as a life skill or as a professional skill they found that there was something in it that changed who they were and that this was of great value to them. And so these, these arts were retained with this perspective. Um, if we look at the Chinese martial arts, um, there's been this tradition of Tao um, as very interlaced with the martial arts, um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: perhaps even more so. And for a very long time, because what are called the internal martial arts, um, Tai Chi, Agwa, and Jingyi are actually Taoist martial arts. They are, deeply interwoven historically with Taoist practices of um, meditation and ritual and, and alchemy and everything else. Um, they understood, and gung fu, the term gung fu, the Chinese term gung fu actually means good work, so approximately. It doesn't mean martial art. But the idea is that when we practice these things, they change us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I I just read some article about this, I, don't, I can't remember where, but... It, it crystallized this thought that, that essentially parkour developed as a DAO, right? Mm-hmm. The guys who started it, they didn't really build it for to put it on YouTube or to become mm-hmm. professionals or to do anything. They built it because they needed an outlet to cultivate themselves in, in a situation that was often not very promising.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, but then when it was spread to the rest of the world, we only saw the jitsu aspect of it. But there's something about parkour that's attracted millions of people now to practice it, despite the fact that there's you know, traditionally not very many coaches available, not very many professional opportunities available. And when you talk to people who practice it, they talk about how it has this life impact on them. Mm-hmm. And that's not unique to parkour, right? If you talk to surfers or jiu-jitsu no. players or anybody else, they all, what I found is that anyone who is deeply devoted to a practice for a long time and gets a lot out of it, when you ask them why they do it, it, it tends not to be technical. It tends to be temperamental or character, right? It's because yeah. it changes who they are.
1: And, and I, think that that's, I think that that's a nice kind of parallel to draw for why I say Esprit Concrete Method mainly uses arti Déplacement, with parkour technique because the parkour has um in our view at least at espy concrete become uh manualized in a way where it's really efficient at teaching movement you know and we've got you know Stefan v and all the rest to thank for this but it's it's easy to be able to break down the movement if you learn it and if you train it you know and also if you practice teaching it uh, for people who just want the movement to get the movement. And then if there's something in that person that perhaps you sense or they sense that is searching for a little bit more, then you kind of need to go into the way that you're talking about. And for me, um, the way that I've experienced art de déplacement being transmitted just inherently has a way about it that I found was something... Um, I felt was only obvious if you were seeking it Mm
2: -hmm. and if
1: you weren't seeking it sometimes it didn't actually feel that different so I didn't I never had in my mind the kind of clear definition of what was what except I knew that kind of parkour I felt everyone could move it Mm -hmm. and when I went and spent time with the yamakasi I felt like not everyone necessarily needed to or wanted to experience that way Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess the mindset that they were maybe sharing or, um, and I love the fact that it's so versatile, which is the same as therapy. So as I said before, somebody can come and say, I just want to learn how to fix this. And then I know I'll be happy. And that's their prerogative. That's their journey. That's what I can help them with, you know, whereas somebody else will say, well, there's just something in me. I'm fine. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, but this just feels like there's something missing. And then that requires a completely different approach. But the medium looks the same if you film it on camera. We're both sitting in a room and we're talking to one another. And with the with the movement, it's the same. If you see people who practice ADD moving, it doesn't look that different in the movements. You see someone doing parkour free running, it doesn't look that different. But it's all in the person and what it means for them. Um, that interpretation was really fascinating for me.
0: That's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm curious about that because... I, I guess I, I've drawn the distinction in a different place. Um, I draw the distinction more in the, the moment that it left France. And I may be wrong about this because you're much closer to that origin than I am, right? You, you've met a lot more or spent a lot more time with the people, right, who are, who are part of this. But my, 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 my perception of it was that you know David and the Yamak and all those people who came together in the beginning, they were cultivating something you know, and they each had their own little version of it. And it could be very different, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Stefan has written about uh, the the anger that he was kind of driving the training that he was doing with David. And then that very much changed when he trained with Williams.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So they had their own visions, right? And they had different ways that were happening. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that beginning was very way-focused, very Tao-focused. and uh, And then I saw the kind of the the jitsu entering um or the Tao being lost let's say as it translated to um, being shared by video because in video we can only see the physical we can't really experience the the psychology behind it very much and i think there's so Uh,
2: yeah i think
1: i think the group dynamic or the group focus there is what interested me so in all honesty i've never spoken to david bell So I hesitate really to talk too much about his perspectives because I would have heard it from other people um, and I don't know him. So uh, from what I've heard, um, there was a kind of, you know, follow me, this is what I'm doing uh, kind of approach. And uh, from a psychologist's point of view, for me, from a therapist's viewpoint, there's a certain individualism to that that allows people who can keep up to keep up, or people who can't to keep up when they can and then find their own way. Yeah. Um, whereas the thing that I found that Williams, Chow, Yan, um mainly those four, but even you know, more recently when I met Malik, mm-hmm. what they share in common, I think was that underlying it, there was a, there was a desire for each one of them to keep the connection between them so that somehow there was always a coming back together and from what i've heard there was a certain sort of chasing of david you know i've heard it's quite difficult to get in touch with him and so i think it is a way but i think maybe as as a psychologist there's sort of autonomy and then collectivism and where does that all fit in and then competition you know why are you training what are your motivations um and there's just a a communal motivation that just came across to me much stronger with the four yamak that i mentioned than with what i've heard from david but then again i've never trained with him so i don't know Um, but that's also from my experience of just different countries and how people train just parkour Mm -hmm. Um, there was for a while when i first found parkour my own stuff was being brought up in that i felt like because it was so easy to see the how did you call it the techniques? The jitsu yeah the jitsu. I got completely consumed by the jitsu. Yeah. I became like obsessed with, you know how good can I be? how fast can I be that good? you know, and I don't even know why because rationally I knew I found this when I was 28 or something like that. You know, my career is actually this thing, which I love. You know, I am not trying to be an athlete, but there was something about my ego that was brought up because it was so thrilling. And there was a lot of unprocessed stuff that I had. So I stuck to that physical and that technique. Mm. So when I found the Yamak who allowed me, allowed my ego to kind of run free and let me really fall on my face with it, you know, then I was like, Well, they knew that's going to happen and I didn't, what am I missing? Mm -hmm. And that's when I kind of found that actually, okay, these movements exist, but if you find a way to understanding why you're looking for those movements and what the movements are giving you, then you get a whole different experience of this thing. Um, and I, because I connected with that idea more with de déplacement than my parkour teachers, I naturally associate the way more with parkour teaching, that uh, with uh, after déplacement teaching than parkour. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I don't mean to say that there isn't the way driving parkour. I just mean in terms of how it's commercialized, mm-hmm. I haven't find I haven't found the commercialization effect after déplacement more the same way, for a various number of reasons. You know, they didn't self they didn't self promote as much. There wasn't that much media. A lot of things are just organic, you know, parkour, as you said, it went on TV and then it boomed. It has media, it has following. Um, And what I'm noticing with the younger generation, even the people who, you know, we train now and the younger kids, it's becoming more and more clear that the movement is what they're chasing. In the same way that they would chase movement if they went to gymnastics or they went to running or they went anywhere else. And they're not always looking for anything more. And that's okay, too. That's another way.
0: Mm-hmm. I find that interesting. Um, what, what it seems to me is that the sustained practice, though, is always the practice that has the meaning embedded in it. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, I don't think you find many 35-year-olds who have been practicing for 10-plus years who are still only movement-focused.
1: Absolutely. I think that that depth is... Um, the what I call the why, the intentionality of what you do. Um, different people ask that question at different time points. But at some point, if you want to stay connected to something, you have to look internally for why you're doing what you're doing. And often that is m- much deeper. So and as part of my model, that's what the seeking is about. If you can understand what you're looking for in this thing, anything, no matter what it is, then you get a better sense of how to manage disappointment when you're not quite getting it. Um, more curious into why do you, why are you looking for that in the first place? You know, is if you if you had something else, would you stop looking for that? Um, there's just a lot more questions that open up when you do think, why am I here? You know, which is not something at all that I would have invented. It's what we probably all ask ourselves, you know? But that, exist, that existential question um, it fascinates me for intrinsic motivation.
2: You know,
0: it,
1: it fuels all work with it at least.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, that aspect of, of what motivates and what gives meaning over the long term. That's the thing that, um, that I'm deeply interested in, right? You know, I'm, I'm 38 now. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough in a lot of ways to have, you know, maybe just enough physical talent and be early enough in the development of it. That I got to kind of like break a lot of things first in my community. It's never necessarily the very best, but I got to have some kind of, uh, you know, thing, landmarks, benchmarks that I got to set out in the in the development of the community. Um, and I remember at one point one of my 11-year-old students came out and did this swing that it took me two years to do, um, and and it was just this recognition that like um, the the physical achievements are ephemeral, right? They're they like, even, even if you do something that the last 30 years and nobody else will do it, you're not going to be able to do it again (laughs) necessarily. Right. Or probably not in 10 years. Um, so, so if you're, if you attach too much to that external, um, it's like the, you're going to burn out. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was trying to compete in parkour at that time and my body was just breaking down and it was like, I can continue pushing for these goals. Um, or I can look at this as something that I can do for my life, and is it that meaningful? Is it that, you know? And if it is, how do I how do I orient myself around that, around the meaning? Um, and and I think, you know, so back to the idea of the jitsu versus the Tao. It seems to me that um, there's certain arts, certain fo- uh, practices that become very Tao focused, and certain arts that become very jitsu focused, and um, it's like the jitsu, they end up, you you, all, you talk to someone who does jiu-jitsu, which is, um, you know, it's very jitsu focused, presenting jiu-jitsu, it's just about, about, the, about the techniques, right? And you ask them why they do that, and they'll always tell you some reason that has to do with character, right? Because it makes me stronger, it helps me deal with my aggression, you know, I, it gives me community, it, it gives me all these things that are valuable to me. It's it's never really about the technique that they're practicing, right? It's like if you went and talked to somebody who is doing surfing, you'd hear similar reasons. Um, and and so it's like, well, but the jujitsu guys are not oriented towards doing that, right? But then you go to the Dao, right? Aikido, um, and and they're oriented towards self development, but often they've lost track of something real. And it's like jujitsu, because you really struggle and because it's chaotic, I think is, is fundamentally a better grounds for self-cultivation than a very scripted, you know, very compliant Aikido match. And it's, it's like, I'm, I'm interested in something that marries these two. And it seems to me that, that parkour auto-diplacement is a very interesting thing because when you, when it's you and the obstacle, um, it's very real, but it gives lots of space to be oriented towards how it's changing you and I think it gives us a potential to to extract those lessons and begin to uh, to see how we' balance that not just within this practice but within other practices as well.
2: yeah,
1: and I think that um I think that uh I don't really like the term psychologically minded, but I feel like if you if you have dialogues with yourself, if you search yourself, if you kind of, you're, you're up for that, you know, mapping yourself out a little bit, yeah. um, then sometimes that's, that's a self discovery and a process that just happens organically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? But sometimes there are people who don't really realize that they could benefit from that or that they maybe even want to do that. And maybe it's really scary to see more than just to jump. Mm -hmm. And that's when we feel like we can make a difference with this approach, Um, because it's guided and the, the custody of that, that decision is shared between whoever they're working with and themselves until they get to own it back and then see the movement in a way that may be a bit scarily insightful to themselves, but actually manageable um and so it's a very opt-in process mm-hmm. uh so initially when we first started Esprit Concrete it was an absolute nightmare to understand how consent fitted into this you know because you're trying to make it in something where there are quite a lot of classes already of parkour after the best more free running and you want people to come so it has to look like a movement class yeah but you also want To work the self-development angle because you have to try this approach you're creating Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and they have to agree to it but if you tell them it's therapy they won't come because they don't want to do therapy and we had this massive dilemma that lasted like a year and maybe even a year and a half and we've only been open three years and we had some really hard experiences um, that allowed us to connect with what what it could be as an option but what it also didn't have to be. So now the classes are really anything anyone who comes to them wants from them. If you're looking for something that is more, uh, you know, way orientated, you'll get it. If you're looking for pure technique, you'll get it. But subtly within the way we teach, we propose every now and again, depending on how ready we perceive people to be, you know, to just think one layer below what they may do. Because like you said, we don't believe that if you're purely movement focused, You'll stay in movement lifelong, and our aim is kind of to keep people active and healthy and connected for us forever. You know, for for their forever.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so it's it's a it's a fine balance between you know definitely having a agenda ourselves because we have a mission you know as a company as an organisation as a method, but also respecting that other people's missions are not the same,
2: yeah.
1: and they don't have to um align themselves with anything when they come to us. They just need to know that there's a possibility that we may ask a question they wouldn't have otherwise been asked. Um, and then they have the right to shut that down. You yeah. know, um so the you know the thing that you were talking about in terms of how can that jump change you. I think that sometimes it's taken a bit for granted that people just make those links. Yeah. And people make those connections. And actually even as somebody who studied psychology, it's a really complicated process. Like even if you make the link, what does it mean? And what do I do with it? It, It's quite complicated for a lot of people. And I think um, sometimes you can be really put off by a sport and exit it because you just maybe didn't quite understand something that happened. Um, And for athletes, that's quite important just for retention as well. but also just for lay people, you know, th- connotations, like parkour is dangerous.
2: Yep.
1: Well, it's not dangerous if you understand how exactly you got into that situation that made you feel vulnerable,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know. And um, I think that sometimes, because uh, there is there is an inherent kind of solid understanding that parkour is so much more than movement, I found that sometimes we forget that a lot of people teach it just as movement. And it's not because we say, you know, we can be stronger together that somehow this makes us together in mm. that process. Um, I guess, yeah, in a recent, you know, interview I did with, uh, this business school, I just said, we blow things up to make them so obvious that then when it's really minute, you can recognize it because you're like, Oh, I've seen that before. Um, and I felt like in classes, sometimes I had questions about myself of why do I keep doing this that were just not answered by physical progressions. I was just stuck like, and it actually had nothing to do with the physical progression.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so I think in the martial arts point of view, maybe in the, in the martial arts that are thinking a bit more about the way, maybe the questions help somehow to guide you to think about the processes or your own kind of reality. But if it happens in a bubble, as you said, it's not real. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you know, we're outside, we're interacting with people, we are using confrontation of being kicked off an estate to understand how do we react to confrontation? How do we unravel that? You know, what was our response? Was it to shower your way? Was it to fight back? Yeah. How would that help us? How would that cost us? Um, we find that really fun and people still learn how to do a con, you know, so why not do both?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately they help each other, right? Like I've been... Yeah over the last few years I've been uh incorporating more and more mindfulness practices into my work and um and initially as a movement teacher that's kind of uh, it's like you know am I am I asking something weird of my students um but you know once you start to dig into it and, and recognize it it's like well if you have a concentration practice a concentration practice helps you concentrate when you're doing a jump, which makes you more successful at the jump. Um, if you, uh, if you have like a meta practice where you're practicing loving kindness, like if you can be more loving and kind toward yourself, when you're frustrated and doing something, you'll actually recover your mindset more quickly and be able to do it. So we can see the physical really easy, but the psychological, um, is very often the limiting piece. And this is something that we think, uh, is, is just incredibly important to understand. Like when someone, we've we've created this model where it's like if somebody has a problem in their, in their application of a skill, uh, you can imagine that they may not even be aware of it. Do they have awareness, right? So awareness is first, and then there's the level of like logical understanding, right? I I get what my body or I, I can describe what my body's supposed to do, right? Um, and then there's the ability to technically embody that. And then there's the um, emotional regulation to do it when you need it, right? So mm-hmm. you, may, you may know what you need to do. You may understand how it's supposed to go. You may have the physical capacity, the strength to do it. Uh, that's the other piece. You have to have the physical quali- qualities, right? So you can have the coordination, but if you're just not strong enough, you're just not strong enough. And then even if you're strong enough, you understand it, you've got the, the skills. Um, if you're scared, you won't do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so being able to understand emotional regulation is actually critical to our performance as an athlete. So we can look at it that way. Um, And then we can look at it the other way, which is ultimately the sport is a small part of your life. So how do you get more out of it, right? Within sport, you know, as a generalist, right? I do martial arts and I do dance and I do parkour and I do all these things, strength training, um, different martial arts. I'm always interested in that question of transfer of training. And that's a huge question, right? In learning theory. Um, But we, we can think about that more broadly. It doesn't have to be, you know, does my throwing translate from soccer or from, you know, from football, American football to, uh, to baseball. It's like, Mm -hmm. does the courage to do the jump transfer from my parkour practice to, to office politics? (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, the, there's a really nice push um in the uk but around the world um but switch um do switch the play i think it's called um so um, they do quite a lot of work on um, transitioning athletes and um even within my own research, it's incredible how, um, like so many other researchers have seen, identity forms so fast. Right? We want to send, We want to feel like we belong. We want to fit in. It's really healthy for us to know how to fit in as well as how to stand out and know what we contribute individually.
2: Mm.
1: But that kind of gets us wrapped into having sometimes multiple identities. So we have these sporting identities that form, or we have training identities. In my thesis, I call it the training self, yes. um, and the the interesting thing is that often what we believe or expect from our training selves is so different from our true selves that we get we begin to encourage these splits unconsciously just mm-hmm. because the way that we train or what we um do within a sporting context is so different from our everyday or our normal mm-hmm. um so for 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 me, I was really interested in, how do we actually keep a more integrated sense of self through sport, just more generally, but I used the medium of BDD Pockle um, Because actually, if we started from that viewpoint, so if we actually, some of the recommendations in my thesis is if we actually started by having an open discussion about who are you really when you're entering this team at 13, yeah. and how do you process things at that age? How can we then tailor your training To make sure that when you exit you're either growing the stuff that's helpful or you're discarding the stuff that's not and that way when you transition out of sport you've lost your job maybe but you haven't lost all the other stuff you know directly you're primed with enough self-confidence to understand you're just going to cut and paste that into another situation Um, and that for me was what was missing from sports psychology because a lot of the time when you when you were doing the assessments, although it can seem very holistic, mm-hmm. um, it seemed much less holistic and integrated than what I felt it could be. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's that's really interesting because we start before the problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because we don't start before that sporting identity forms or we don't start with, this is my life now. This is all I've become because the understanding, as you said, that sport is just the small part. And then what other parts do you have? They're already there from the beginning, you know, even in how we formulate, even in how we coach. Um, And I think that's, that's a tricky one because when you, when you go to a soccer field, for example, we went, we were just walking the other day and we saw this soccer match and um, (laughs) we're watching the football and the culture was so obvious you know and Yao and I were just literally spectating it was a Sunday and we were like this is a show you know we, we were watching this uh, this team play and it was just in a local park and it was incredible the level of competitiveness the language the vulgarity that was coming out of it but everyone was on board because that's the culture that matches them and yet to us we were just sitting there thinking you do this for fun like we couldn't we couldn't understand you know But at the same time, we were just saying how fascinating it is, you know, how do you maintain yourself not like that in an environment like that? Because you want to play football. And so understanding, you know, how you keep your own kind of um, person whole in an environment. And if you normalize the fact that you can be that in that culture, the culture also changes over time. So longitudinally speaking, it's quite interesting to, to imagine, you know, what, what will it look like? What will sport look like in 20 years now that more people are more focused on transition, on adaptability, on identity, you know, yeah. being more integrated rather than split. Um, cause I think it's, it's definitely going to be help, a helpful discussion to have if there aren't, if it's not such a separate thing, you know, real life and sport.
0: Well, it's interesting because if we look at the, the history of sport, right, the, the orientation of sport initially is is much more around the cultivation of, of individuals than it is around the winning of the team, right? Competition mm-hmm. uh, means to strive together. That's the I believe Greek mm-hmm. word, right, or Latin. I think it's Greek. Um, it means to strive together, and it was it was um, it was in in contrast to war. So sport was something that you did with people in your police, in your your city-state, to prepare yourself so that you could go to war, because war was very common, right? So I wanna, you know, if we're in the same uh, city-state, I wanna compete with you so that we both get really strong and really capable, but I don't wanna compete with you in such a way that I break you or you break me, because I'm gonna need you in that shield (laughs) when we're fighting Sparta. Um, and, and if we, you know, like recently I've been reading a little bit about the origins of a lot of the modern sports, like gymnastics and yawn and, um, and the, you know, the British sports that all came out of the the boarding school systems and and, and that stuff. So, you know, the, the British said the battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. right? Mm-hmm. The idea being that the games that the British had developed were important not for the game itself, but because they developed the character of these young men that they could then go and succeed on the battlefield.
2: Right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems like somehow that's gotten lost over time, as um, you know, uh, I'm, I always hesitate when I invoke capitalism because you know, there's so much negativity towards capitalism and I think it's very valuable in certain ways, but as, as sport has become very capitalist, Right, and has become oriented towards winning in order to make money, in order to sell products, sell entertainment. Um, a lot of that idea of sport as a place where people self-cultivate has disappeared, it seems like. And then at the same time, more and more of our physical culture has been gobbled up by the sport pyramid. Right, so almost, you know, almost none of the people who are engaged in soccer or football or, uh, whatever at third grade or first grade are going to go on and be professionals or high school, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondary school. Um,
2: yeah.
0: And yet the, the orientation of the whole system is, is, seems to be mostly about finding the people who are, and even those who are, you know, the average career in, in American football is two and a half years, right? So, two and a half, right? Um, that's, there's a lot of life left after that.
2: Yeah.
0: And when we, when we cultivate the system in this way, it seems like we are, um, we're missing something tremendous. And I think that's actually part of why parkour was so appealing as it came out, um, was that it, it provided a space where people could get outside of that, um, that meat grinder in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, and I think um, I think that's why I really like the fact that, um, so I always, I started training outside, that was how I started. Um, some people um, obviously start training inside and then transition um, and for me, it really helped me feel comfortable and own my space in yeah. public, um, but also it made me aware of how lucky we are in the uk that there is also or at least in london sorry i shouldn't say the uk but in london that there is a certain open-mindedness sometimes that i think i used to take for granted and then there's also a very big shift towards privatization and the mindset that follows privatization and it's very segregating and so when you know when i first went to a park or park i was fascinated and you know i thought well this is really cool because this is like always there and it's specifically for the things that we train so there's a consistency to the physicality of training that you can gain and you can really hone those skills yeah. but in terms of normalizing practicing parkour and making it a norm a norm a social norm i really really feel like it draws back from that um to a certain degree because We don't yet have an overly privatized system. And although capitalism is everywhere, and Lord knows, we're very heavily involved in it, um, the consumerist uh, kind of aspect to parkour is something that I think we could potentially move away from um, as organizations if we keep the inherent kind of let's work together mindset, because the discipline is so orientated to getting stronger together. So um, the fact that we are all private companies makes total sense um, for the environment we live in, because there is no funding for us, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in the same in the sense that it's there isn't like there wasn't a national governing body at the time when people first started and having a private company was a way for you to do what you wanted to do. And if that was parkour, brilliant. So you were creating these spaces. But Esprit Concrete also tries very heavily to secure a certain percentage of its budget from grants that come from the government every year so that we know that the state and the community are paying for us to be out there Mm -hmm. teaching these guys to move in their streets um, so that we try to keep the capitalist side of things a little bit at bay Um, just, just for integration really, um, for normalization, uh, not just of mental health stigma, but also freedom of practice, uh, the ability to show people we can use their space and not ruin it. Um, The other opportunity of also maybe people will ruin it, but we can also self-manage that because in our discipline, we have certain things we believe in, certain values we believe in, not everyone, but the people who do, they have a voice. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite different that way to other sports that I've seen. It, it has a potential for self-regulation that's quite powerful yeah. Um, if it's seen as a way. Um, but at the same time, I'm really sort of a- against people pushing things down my throat. So I don't go around, you know, promoting the way <laughs> that's not usually my style, but now that we're talking about it, um, people may disagree because I talk about my work a lot. Um, but I kind of feel like if you, if you are new, and you're a sport that just started we've got the potential to do it a bit differently to how it was done before which is why I was really happy when I started working with um, Parkour UK uh, because for for us Eugene Minogue and everybody else um, at Parkour UK they work so heavily to um, get us a seat yeah. at the table nationally that now we have a really organic opportunity to put all this no- these novel links that we're making, you know, with longevity, with transition, with uh, integrated identities, from a duty of care point of view, from a coaching point of view, from a transmission point of view, um, even from a structural point of view. So PKG are, you know, working now with spaces, natural spaces to make them parkour friendly. Um, there's a lot of initiative here for this sport to stay quite different in that it doesn't happen separate to life. Yeah. It kind of is life. Um, Whether people buy into it or not doesn't really matter. The fact that we have the ability to make that a possibility is really remarkable, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, you know, I think parkour is a fascinating social phenomenon. And it has, you know, um, I think everyone in any discipline that you love, there's always a tendency to want to fetishize it, right? So I always try to, to place it in context and say, well, you can see very similar things in skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing and whatever. Um, but it does seem that it um, that due to the point at which it arose and maybe the fact that it, you know, it's something that you can just do with your body in any space um, It has some some opportunities that are really unique um and this this idea of the parkour philosophy this idea of you know seeing people like yourself like myself like um you know other people talking about the idea that it's 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 not just the physical things right um i don't you know maybe i'm missing it but i don't see that conversation as much you know as prominently necessarily um having happened say in in you know the rise of skateboarding in the 1980s um and so i do think there's a really cool opportunity for us to to kind of, you know, it, huh? This is just a thought that occurs to me. But let's say that there's a predominant system of sport, like there's a culture of sport, and that culture of sport, I think, in a lot of ways, this is this is a thesis that I've been playing with, and I don't have. Um, it's it's like worthy of like studying on like a book level, but I don't have the time or resources to do it. But it looks to me like a lot of the current sport culture that we had developed during the rise of nationalism in Europe right mm-hmm. so if you look at Jan's gymnastics it's very much not just about gymnastics it's about german mm-hmm. yeah. that the Germans are um are like essentially the Ur people who reflect the ancient Greek heritage because the the enlightenment had made everyone really fond of the Greeks and uh, that Greek heritage um, but they didn't want to attribute the Greek heritage to actual brown-skinned Greeks they wanted to attribute mm-hmm. it to blonde Aryan people like themselves Um, and they wanted to claim those games for themselves and so gymnastics you know is obviously the term comes from Greek um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the disciplines were were inspired by it and so gymnastics develops as that Uh, soccer rugby gridiron football um, cricket uh, baseball all those are developed you know you know in that British boarding school system or the American equivalents of it and, you know, really oriented towards the production of of good members of the empire, right? And so there was this nationalistic meaning that was given to sport, which has collapsed. And that meaning um, maybe had some positives, also had some uh, pretty, pretty, you know, strong negatives that we could potentially point out. Um, but it's all, I also think it's collapsed and it's been replaced by a corporatism. And so it just strikes me all of a sudden that if you look at like the early flow sports like snowboarding, like surfing, they're very much associated with a counterculture, which is a reactive pushback against. Absolutely. Against yes. And it seems like parkour is like maybe the third generation of that that's coming in with more of a potential for integration. It's not so reactive that it's just anti the system, mm-hmm. it can actually be a, a discipline that's about. Looking at it a little bit more than just, we don't like that, we don't want to do it, but why did it become what it is, and how do we integrate something better going forward?
2: Yeah. Um,
1: So in my thesis, there's a part that talks about um, a theme that came out, um, a process of almost um, cultish integration. Um, that came from practicing so different people who experienced practicing parkour um, and just to note you know what you were saying about it's it's so easy sometimes to you know put our our sport on the pedestal and actually I I'm quite um, I'd say I'd like to say uh, critically analytical but sometimes quite critical too or quite cynical and um, so I researched the costs of Parkour, you know, rather than the gains, because when my proposal came in, everything was about the benefits of Parkour. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was actually the opposite that fascinated me. And one of the things was this real kind of sense of engulfment that Mm -hmm. can either feel very safe and motivating because you keep wanting to return or very threatening Mm -hmm. because when you don't feel like you're fitting into the culture, you feel stressed to the point that sometimes you even just get too stressed that you don't wanna go to classes because you're worried about how that's gonna be. Um, So there was this kind of duality that was really interesting. Um, And actually the thing that fascinated me was that the way that I've understood the history of how the discipline developed, whether it's David Bell or not, was really about what does this form of movement or search for movement or just use of body and self do for me
2: yeah
1: so it really had me at the per at the center of it whether that is because i want to be as strong as i can be physically or whether that is because i want to give back to my community it doesn't really matter there was a me at the center of it and then there was a kind of okay and what will the group give me Mm -hmm. followed by then maybe i want to give back or it will make me stronger on the path that i'm on you know, and it still stays quite me. It doesn't really matter. But it kind of, um, it kind of also almost felt like while I was researching that organically, whenever you have a discipline that's a little bit rebellious in the sense that it challenges certain things, it can easily be almost um, easy, depending on what your own uh, combat is with uh, societal conformity, to hop on the bandwagon of being destructive. So, you know, whether that's with property or that's even with the expression of movement with itself, sometimes there's a real kind of look at me or I can do this, this invincibility that came out in my thesis that is quite heroic. It's linked to some people called it in, you know, in my interviews, hedonism. Um, And somehow it was a display of a rebelliousness that they had that actually once they identified that they really wanted to address that, they went back to the community aspect of parkour. Um, and they actually went back to actually know what I train brings people together and it's actually more about me and how I've interpreted, uh, I've interpreted this training that has made me rebellious. So using it as a rebellion, um, and they were just going through this process and they had said, you know, they'd never discussed this before, but they kind of found that out as they were doing the interview with me, um, with no prompting from me, because obviously I was just collecting data at that time. Um, and I thought it was fascinating because it made me realize that like you said, compared to other sports that maybe did start with some kind of rebellion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the Yamaks that I met and David Bell from what I've seen, although they were doing the sport to get stronger to try to figure something out for themselves, it wasn't in a way to push back on anything. It was trying to, trying to make things better. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the way it looks, uh if that person has something rebellious that is happening within them, it can be adopted for the opposite. Yeah. Um so its versatility uh was really fascinating to me, but also really interesting just on a national level of how easy it is for people to buy into this perception, as I said before, of parkour is dangerous,
2: mm-hmm. parkour
1: is an alternative sport. Um you know <laughs> it's different. Um but I think it is those things just without the connotation that often comes with it.
0: Yeah, so you you, you triggered something interesting for me in the idea of the risks of parkour, or the, the negatives, the cost of membership or or of of deciding to train. Because not just in parkour, but in all these sports that I hear people saying, you're gonna get all of these benefits out of them. I have this question, how do we, how do we do that better, or I look at people like you said in your your parkour journey, um, it changed the way that you felt in public spaces that you mm-hmm. got gained confidence, you gained something that was really meaningful to you and it feels like most you know especially in the early days of parkour, most of the people, the leaders of the parkour community that I met, they could all tell you that that, that parkour had changed them in some fundamental way, it changed their interaction with the world and and this was really powerful. And we just felt that like, um, in the beginning for me, we felt that like, if we just exposed people to parkour, they would get these changes and it would be awesome. And you didn't have to do anything other than have people jump off stuff and they'd get it. Um, but as I see it now, um, I think that was naive, right? I think that just because you achieved a change from this jump, it doesn't mean that, that or from this discipline, doesn't mean there's anything unique to that discipline versus anything else that you could have tried. Um, and it also doesn't mean that you're going to continue to accrue those beneficial changes if you keep doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it also doesn't mean that there aren't potential negatives. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the, I think, um, a few things that just stand out when you're saying it actually, um, in relation to my own experience, but also what I now see when I'm teaching and when I'm planning workshops the people who transmit are the people who I feel leave the change Mm -hmm. the parkour itself I'm not convinced it does anything more than instantly gratify an individual I know that's a really controversial statement but because it's so imminent that the moment it stops working and it stops giving the interpretation of what more is there to a jump,
2: mm-hmm.
1: usually i found comes from either the internal voice and the internal dialogue people have,
2: yeah.
1: or the community. So I think that there's also a transition in the, the transmission.
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: been a change in the transmission as it explodes.
0: Yeah, oh yeah. So I mean, <laughs> there is, obviously it was spread in France by a word of mouth and direct experience. And then it was spread in my generation um, through downloadable content. We had to go onto forums and talk to people and get them to share videos and like go onto MegaUpload.com and like spend hours downloading videos. And then there was YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. Now there's you know cinema quality uh, videos being published every day, pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, with tons of parkour content. Like I found with myself, like. A lot of times, I can just watch parkour now, and it doesn't even mean anything to me. It's just like it's just pretty images flashing on a screen. Um, so that's changed tremendously, right? Um, and and there's there's also like uh, there's transmission of positive. There's also the potential for transmission of negative. There's there's all these cultures that have developed.
1: But I think that that's also really key to the person. So somebody watching it will be driven by their drivers. Yeah. Some of them will be unconscious. (laughs) So sometimes when you see, you know, um, and a lot of what I say, usually I said this in the workshop I delivered today, it's obvious what I say, but it's amazing how we don't often pull it back into head when we're training or when we're doing other things, because it's so obvious we forget about it. And yet that's the thing with social media, how somebody internalizes what they're seeing is dependent on their own search that they may not even be aware of so if they have a real need to gratify something or to resolve something and it happens to be something that's going to make them even less happy with themselves in the long term they're going to get that from that thing they see and they're going to go to a teacher and say i want you to teach me that thing and the teacher may not ask why they may teach it to them and then they go and they end up doing something, I'm not even talking about injury, but just forming patterns with that training, where the training is feeding into something that maybe is really far removed from the kind of healthy, productive view we all hold of what this discipline can bring us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, you know, I always say, you know, what's your parkour? Mm -hmm. Because although I like to think I do know a little bit of the history and, you know, I've tried to do my research, the people in front of me that i try to um, train with or i try to share with they don't just get their parkour experience they also get mine and i get theirs Mm -hmm. and that's kind of stripped away with social media unless the thing that you're watching has process in it Mm -hmm. um and that's why I think with Esprit Concrete Athletes, we try so hard that even if it bores some people, we try to get them to talk about the process behind their movement because we don't want people to just see a backflip
2: yeah.
1: or just see a jump. You know, We want them to see what happened to that individual. So if there is somebody sitting at home thinking, yeah, I want to do that because I'm going to feel awesome. They may also be like, okay, maybe in the end I'll feel awesome. But first I may spend a year feeling pretty crap and how
2: do I, what do I do with that? Mm-hmm. If I still want my backflip, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, that in, in our workshops, uh, we've started doing a thing where after a, a certain amount of time, we'll stop and have people dialogue, right? So it's like, what did you get from that, right? And we'll give them uh, questions to help them format and think about what the types of insights they might get out of it are. And then another big uh, piece of that is that the story is their story, right? Mm -hmm. We share our story, we share our paradigm, but we always try to leave a level of agnosticism, right? So there's the parkour that is the, you know, or the whatever evolve, you know, evolve, move, play. Um, There's the overarching story, and then there's the meaning that it has for each individual. And it's important to recognize that uh, the overarching story can't completely you know that the individual stories can't completely collapse into the overarching story if they do then you're you're taking something away from the students that's very very valuable so that's a uh, that's really uh, something that's very important to me I think
1: yeah and I think for us it's really important um, thinking about national governing bodies it's really important for risk management yeah you know um, right. thinking just in terms of you know at least for me duty of care, how do we how do we show people our paradigm out there? Mm -hmm. How do we set standards that, you know, aren't boxing people in, but are keeping a format that more or less allows what we believe is healthy development, you know, informed by ourselves, our members, the board, but also just research in general. How do we do that to minimize the... Negative impact of social media because if we think about the millions of views that we get in the UK of what's happening, knowing getting to know why people join parkour, Mm -hmm. I think is quite important for us to mitigate risk. So, I don't think parkour is dangerous, I just think that people's perception of parkour and how they internalize it and what it can mean for them and what they envisage themselves doing within parkour or using parkour for, it's it's much more complicated than I think we give it credit for often. Yeah. Um, so for example, a very concrete example is just, if, if you do, if you are struggling, for example, with um, the parts of us that we all have, but not the healthy narcissism, but the narcissism that gets us in trouble, or that keeps us away from people. Yeah, if we've got that knocking at the door a lot, and we want to be self-gratified a lot, and we want to um, we fall into that trap of wanting to feel bigger, greater, grandiose than we are. Parkour is great for that, especially if you're a natural mover. Yeah. And then maybe it distances you from the community and then you're isolated. And that kind of stuff can happen um, you know, in free training, but it can also happen in a club. And then there are costs to that. Um, it could happen in a team if we ever do move that level um, of of um sport or art and that kind of stuff i think we could potentially be ahead of the game for trying to mitigate it because it's so new Mm -hmm. in one way it's very old but you know what i mean it's new in the kind of hierarchical system of things
0: yeah the i wanted to dig into this question of the the harms right um a little bit more there's a I've noticed, you know, so I, you, to go back to the analogy of the jump, you do a jump and it challenges you to overcome fear, right? So you, you, you did that. Now you have some resource that you can call on to know what it's like to overcome fear, something that's embodied. That's really powerful. Um, but then there's the transfer of training effect. Do you actually go to your life and when you need to, uh, ask for a raise with your boss or ask out a pretty girl or, you know, have a difficult conversation with your partner. Do you, do you, can you access that courage? And then I think that there's a trap. The trap is that sometimes when you're, when you're having that anxiety in the other places in your life, but you have this cultivated place where you can feel like a courageous person, it becomes the place where you hide from the things that you actually need to confront.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's like all these things that we have, um, all these tools that we have, whether it's parkour or jujitsu or you know ballet dancing or meditation, um, it's useful to think of them as tools. And when they're integrated well, they can be very powerful, but they all also can be turned to negative purposes, right? I've seen people who are Vipassana practitioners who've completely turned off their emotions in a very negative way. Um, and I've seen, you know, some of the best parkour athletes in the, in the States are people who are, are suffering suicidal level, uh, levels of depression and abusing substances. Um, and, and, and it's so interesting to think there's this promise that this practice can give you something. And yet I've seen people walk down very dark paths. Um, maybe not because of the practice, but the practice didn't prevent it, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm, uh, I'm very curious, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of the time that we had allowed for this. But I'm curious for your take on how we can do this better, how we can um, recognize the shadow side of what we practice better and integrate the insights better. And what is some practical advice that you could give the, the people watching today to integrate their practice better?
1: The easiest thing that we try to do with our community, um, and I say the easiest because it's the easiest to say and it's the easiest for people to understand and you don't need any other skills than just being a human being to do it. It's really uh, train telling people what you think. And the reason why I say that is because it's a really scary thing to tell people what you think. Um, It's really scary to tell them what you think about yourself. It's sometimes even scarier to tell them what you think about them. And part of training, at least for us, is the potential to not only get to know yourselves, but to get up to know other people. So the risk of an individual going down a path, for example, like the one you described, it doesn't happen overnight. There are signs just like any other uh, sport or any other um, event, life event. Um, in order to get to understand why, what that person's looking for, you know, why are they switching off their emotions to be able to do that Mm conversation? It takes a simple conversation. It's just not simple because it requires a lot of courage. So it's, I guess that the advice is try in the same way that you would approach a jump and do all the progressions to try to make it. I think really trying to increase your communication and you're bonding with the people that are around you training, it's a nice kind of self-regulatory thing that we can all do in the community to just be a lot more open about what someone's training is and what it is not. And I think um, instead of us you know, getting trapped into this thing of idolizing the fact that did you see how massive that composition was, maybe just seeing how did the person react when they did the composition? Did they seem gratified or did they seem like it wasn't enough? You know, maybe just caring enough about the humanity part of that individual to see whether once they can't jump anymore, are they still going to be happy? Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't take a psychologist to, um, to have those conversations. It kind of just takes a bit of curiosity in the other person, but really as a person, um, I think. And also a little bit of time. So when you're going to training, you know, maybe being able to spend a bit of a few moments, just talking to somebody about them. So, so often you do see great groups of people training, but they're actually just jumping together in the same space. They don't actually know each other. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, knowing somebody also maybe takes on a different understanding because of what I do or what I allow myself to ask people, or, you know, I, I try not, I try my best not to force people to speak to me, but I kind of provide a floor to be like, I really am here to listen. And I think we can all do more of that. You know, so if you see someone getting so frustrated with not being able to do something, just take a few minutes if you can to just ask them, you know, but what's really getting at you? Because you seem really frustrated about not getting this one jump. What is it about the jump? What is it? Um, To get to understand people's intentionality a bit more, because then... You can safeguard. Like safeguarding is all our duty, right? Um, it's something we all need to do, or we should all want to do, just as human beings, keep ourselves safe. Yeah. Um, and we we have to do that, I think, in parkour because the risk is high. Um, the danger is not. you? Know, you- the danger- yeah. I mean, the uh, sorry, the danger is not high. The danger is not high because the risk taking is what we manage. It's what we learn.
0: Well, the way that I I frame this is. Um- risk is how likely something is to fail, and danger is the consequences of the failure. Um, so you kind of have...
1: Sorry, the da- yes, yes. Sorry, so the, yes, the, the danger is high. really low.
0: Is low if it's... dangerous, exactly. potentially high. Risk is very low if you do. Yes,
1: but the risk is high, and the, the, the danger is very low. There isn't... There isn't the,
0: I would say it exactly.
2: The
1: is, sorry, the risk is high. No, the risk is low. <laughs>
2: danger. Um,
1: but the danger is high, Yeah. I'm getting confused, but um, yeah, basically there's there's very little likelihood of the devastation happening. Otherwise it would be happening more often, but our ability to move towards that devastation collectively, I think if we just pay a bit more attention to the person moving rather than just, wow, you've got really nice technique,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that's it. Can you teach me how to jump like that? And then leaving.
0: What is the internal process? What's going on? Why are you doing it? Why am I doing it?
1: Yeah. Uh, and also just, is this a need or a want? Yeah. You know, same as if you think about alcohol.
0: I think about the idea of the call of the jump, right? There, the, the, the breaking the jump series, right? Do you feel the call? You know, have you assessed the jump? Have you processed your fear? Have you made your decision? Can you act? Um, and sometimes I see a jump and it's like, you know, I know that I'm physically capable of it. I have that that sense of like being hooked to it but I recognize that it's not really for me that day. It's not who I am that day. It's maybe a future me or a past me, um, Mm -hmm. someone else who's doing it in the scenario. It's very important to me to be like, no, I'm I'm fully aligned with taking this jump now. And and safety always is about that deep integration of the self for me.
2: Yeah,
1: but you've already reframed it differently. You've mentioned it as the call to the jump,
2: Yeah.
1: yeah? You've not said, I can do this jump, but I can't do it now. So Mm -hmm. for us, if you can't do it now, you can't do that jump now. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And it's different to say, I really want this jump. Yeah. And I'd love to have it now, but Mm -hmm. actually maybe I can't have it now, but I can have this, this, and this, or maybe somebody else volunteering. Well, maybe you can't have the jump right now, but how about you do this, this, and this? And then normalizing the fact that What, what's the worst thing that would happen if you never had the jump?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's also scary for somebody who really, really wants the jump Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and who also more and more now is going to want the jump to make money from it. Mm
0: -hmm. And prestige.
1: Yeah. And Instagram views.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Dopamine. Um, I think that the asking the question "why" is kind of maybe the theme of the conversation here. That that what people need to do is is think about that more deeply, and that's going to be I mean create processes to to extract that, so they'll have a better integration of their pro, of their practice. Um, yeah.
1: And I think just thinking about how yeah. like what is happening yeah, makes the why more apparent because sometimes we get stuck on the why because. We miss out the how, and the how is probably easier to grasp than the why because sometimes we never find out why.
0: <laughs>
1: That's
0: true. <laughs> yeah, I have you know, I just published one of our our you know solo podcasts, the why, what, how of Evolving with move, play. Um, we've tried to really refine that down um, as a as a general model, as my model. Um, so there's there's that, and then. There's one other thing that popped into my head that I wanted to sort of share here, which is, oh, when you're talking about talking to people, right, that's something that's very interesting because that's something that's come out of our workshops. Because we teach, I think the group class format or the group get together format where it's brief um, Mm -hmm. has major limitations. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we've gone to these long retreats where we have four and eight day long retreats, uh, it, it facilitates the communication around the process in a much deeper way. And it creates this sense of meaningful experience and connection where people have friendships and safety to start exploring who they are and what they're motivated by in a very different way. And it's interesting because just last night I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the conversations that I can have with the students and with the group of people who've come through that and the fear and inhibition uh, that I had to have those same kinds of conversations when I was first in my practice right Mm -hmm. um, you know there are people for instance who i really was hoping that i would get to practice with more often and it didn't happen and the sense that if i actually just asked them why that wasn't happening it would be acknowledging some insufficiency in myself that um that was very threatening right To, to say that i would really appreciate it if you would just come and train with me um felt like a, a major uh, blow to my ego, I think at that time, to be that vulnerable um, with uh, the people in my community who I was training with. And so I, it just struck me as something that is worth recognizing for people that um, saying talk to people, yes, but also recognize that it carries that, that need for courage and, and vulnerability um, can be an extremely courageous act.
1: Absolutely. And the people around you who are not training with you can also help point that out that maybe more generally that vulnerability has come up before. Yeah. And if it has, then it's something that you're going to or you have worked on, but we can't see our own vulnerabilities often. You know, none of us can. I mean, I I have my own therapist, I have supervision, you know, I have people around me to make sure I can deliver the best practice, but also I can be someone I'm happy with. So, you know, I think um, it does take huge amounts of courage, but in that fundamental concept, you know, of this discipline, you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. If you're choosing to be alone, it may be because it's tough not to be alone. And maybe there are skills there that need to be groomed, but perhaps there's one or two people that you could trust to help point out when the habits resurface of pulling back, of avoiding, of staying to yourself, and slowly but surely, they can take that risk with you you know it's a little bit like spotting Mm -hmm. you just give them a bit of autonomy for a little bit and then you take it back and it doesn't have to be only in a movement context um because there were people maybe who would have noticed that you were shying away from things maybe with the way that you said things or the questions that you asked and perhaps they were also too scared to bring it up and you know they're that's just the example you know that you gave but just in general if we see it more as a collective responsibility to make sure that everyone's growing the way they want to grow then maybe we don't feel so alone all the time otherwise it's a lot to shoulder you know even for yourself having that courage to speak up for yourself sometimes yes we need to learn that but at the same time we also need to learn how to allow others to help us and others need to step up um, together
0: i think Sometimes it's hard. Um,
2: Absolutely,
0: but it's a uh, lifelong
2: movement.
0: Yeah, yeah. But there's, this almost feels like a a call for the the you know, I'm saying the movement practice, but really this could be for any community. But it's a call for taking up a kind of a, a burden of emotional courage or a a um, a duty of emotional courage. Um,
1: Absolutely. To Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I think the duty to care for yourself and others—if we all have it as our own—then when we have the capacity, we can do our bit. And when we don't, hopefully somebody else will do their bit.
0: is. Um, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no. I was going to say, you know, often people who know me, you know, laugh at me and say, you know, you're so utopic. You've got this hope. And but I kind of feel like that's what makes me. Work on what I'm working on, and that's what you know allows me to kind of face disappointment when there is because it's not delusional hope, it's just sort of like I know the reality is different, but I also know that if we don't hope for a different reality for tomorrow, then we're not going to target our actions in that direction either. We're sort of just going to sit with this idea that everything is crap, and for me, that kind of keeps us quite stagnant, or we're going to talk a lot about what we're going to do. And then when it comes to really sweating it out before you take that brave step, you may not be able to do that. Um, but I've seen people spend 10 years trying to take that step and then take it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To me, that's been worth it for them. That's been worth it for me, but it took them 10
2: years. So what? Yeah:
0: Yeah. I mean, I always say with people's progress, you know people often will say you know, how can I progress faster? How can I do this? And I'll be like, if you're having progress, um, be thankful, start with gratitude for the fact that there's progress because it's not always going to be there. Sometimes you'll struggle. Sometimes you'll regress. And so my own practice is like, I try not to be too greedy. If it's going in in the right direction, I don't need to necessarily take it that much faster.
1: Yeah. And in response to that question, I would really ask them, how are you defining progress?
0: Absolutely. Um yeah, I think that's a good place to to sum it up uh a call for emotional courage
1: <laughs> Yes, we all need some
0: <laughs> i guess I wanted to say I think it's interesting that you you draw this distinction between um between the 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 culture or the way that was cultivated with a d d and what came out of parkour um as more. Tribal oriented versus more individually oriented and uh, you know uh, Like several times through the course of the conversation. I just had the phrase in the back of my mind echoing You know, we start together we finish together um, So uh,
1: And I think you know that there's there's something to be said definitely with that that I, I strongly believe in parkour community yeah. I believe that parkour community is a thing. So like in my mind, there's after déplacement, there's free running and parkour this parkour community my understanding of David of David Bell's parkour is very different to the parkour practice today yeah. and I think that that's just because the community innately organically needs connection they thrive on connection they want that connectivity it kind of takes them back to the tribal need the in-group need you know and that's I think what brings about that be stronger together but for me that phrase had always kind of been awakened in me when I was with the Yamak. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily when I was in a parkour class. That's just my experience.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but when I was free training in the community, then I felt like I was back with the ADD community. And the reason I call it the ADD community is because the other guys don't call themselves that. So the ADD community for me are the ADD, the people who say I practice after déplacement, whereas the parkour community are the people who say I do parkour. Um, but for me, I found that people were doing parkour and I was like, but you know, you're actually also doing ADD and it was that thing of like, okay, so when did that start? And that's why for me, I made the difference between, okay, I think parkour, the way I I hear the founders speak about it because I can't access David. Mm -hmm. Um, it sounds like it it had a, maybe a different meaning or
2: significance
1: for him, Mm -hmm. just as him. Yeah. But then the community took up a similar meaning to what the Yamakasi have somehow, you know, um, and then it got confusing.
0: (laughs) I think think that, you know, you had, you had the split and then you had the, the, the jump where it jumped to all these other communities. And then you have this self self self-organization of different, different energies, different, different values coming through. And then, you know, Someone like Stefan is, is David's student, but then he goes and trains with William, and he picks up some of that culture. And then he comes to the UK and starts Parkour Generations. And you know, yeah. um, Blaine goes and trains with uh, folks in, yeah. in, uh, in France. And so there's lots of there's lots of these interesting connections between the community. I
1: should say that most of this, what I've just said, and this kind of vision, it changed the most at uh, two every move events ago, okay. because that's when Stefan went back. Um, also and I we we were all privy to their discussions. And obviously if you speak French then it was even easier. Um but that's when I got to know a lot more about the history, but even from Stefan's point of view, and really seeing the emotion of what it meant for him to be there and how different that was for him to be either by himself or with his past, yeah. um, with David. And there was no there was no um judgment on it it really was just a pure there is a difference here
2: yeah and
1: what is that difference and hearing them talk about it made me kind of reinforce what I thought initially of like oh so there is a difference and there's a difference even for people who started with David yeah and I think that's that's when I realized that's what I've been sensing because you know and I traveled quite a lot to try and find what I was looking for in terms of the that community origin the tribal origin you were talking about the sense of family the belonging um without even knowing that that was what I was looking for but I I reached out and well now they actually are like my second family and it's you know it's it's awesome and Esprit Concrete wouldn't exist without them um but yeah I think there's a difference I just think it depends what you're looking for and your reality of it will depend on your interpretation of it um but some of what I've I believe does come from their storytelling of their life. So I feel like, yeah, just to not.
0: Sorry, you broke up there for a second, just to not.
1: Yeah, uh, just to reiterate, obviously, that I haven't spoken to David Bell. This comes from, you know, hearing Stefan Bigru speaking a bit to Tomas, the four Yamax that I mentioned, you know, Malik. Mm -hmm. The forums at every move are very nice. To learn about the history as well when they go on their tours in lease, yeah. and you know, they actually tell the stories the childhood stories. Me and David did this here, you know, and then you they're very open in sharing that history now compared to when I first met them five years ago,
2: um,
1: for a various number of reasons. But if anyone wants to know about them, I would strongly suggest going to every move and finding out.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's interesting, I feel like. You know, we've been focusing on the importance and the value of the tribal aspect. And, uh, and, and I think, I, w- I wouldn't want people to get the impression that, that, that what David was building wasn't also important because there is the importance of, the, of, the, of building yourself as an individual. And but I
1: think what you said at the beginning does that
0: because each of
1: them are different. So as a, when, you, when you get taught by Laurent and then you get taught by Yan and then you get put taught by Xiao and Williams, you almost get a sense in my opinion, I get a sense that they don't work just on their own, they form a piece of a puzzle. Yeah. So that individuality that each person brought, and I'm presuming David as well, it, it's really an individual in a tribe rather than you just buy into a tribe.
0: Yeah, you, want, you, you need both. You need that. You definitely in need practice, both. My own practice Absolutely. that that if I don't train on my own occasionally, there's something missing that there is a 100%. Is necessary. Yes,
1: And there's a, there's a section um, on the recommendation side. So it's called the contained practitioner uh, model in my model, in my thesis that talks about the importance of even how that grows play and autonomy and creativity um, that you need a balance between in-group and solo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, no, totally, totally agree.
0: Beautiful. Well, um, I definitely think we should uh we need to we need to wrap up but it's i'm sure you and i could go on talking for a long time and i hope yeah. lots more conversation oh,
1: thank you very much for the opportunity and obviously shout out to cordelia and she's the one who suggested it because that's um that's really lovely to get a chance to meet um someone new but also have these kind of conversations um it's one of the beauties of internet
0: yeah um, and so there's uh Program coaching program director at Parkour Visions, right now, I believe. Um, she's the one who recommended that we speak. So, yes, thank you to Cordelia. And thank you, Kasturi.
2: Thank you, Raf.
0: Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course you really wanna support us, you can support us on Patreon. This is a listener funded podcast and through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things and we look forward to talking to you next time.